So this morning, we are in a series here at New Life um, that is uh, called Piecing It All Together. We're kind of putting together the pieces of Scripture. So some of us grew up in church. Some of us grew up uh, going to church on a regular basis. Some of us kind of popped into church maybe periodically with our grandparents. Uh, Some of us didn't go to church at all. That wasn't just a part of our life. Uh, Maybe we grew up in a different faith tradition altogether or just grew up in a family that just wasn't a part of things. And so you're here and you're kind of, you've maybe looked at Scripture periodically, but it doesn't kind of fit together. And one of the challenges is because it all fits together. You know, the, the Scripture is, we call it the Bible, and yet it's, and we call it the good book, because sometimes what you hear people refer to it as, and yet it's not a book. It's 66 books written over 2,000 years, written in at least three different languages. Some say four, if you want to get that little bit of Udu in there that's periodically shows up in the Old Testament. There's all these different languages, all these different authors over a huge amount of time, and how does it all fit together? How does it all piece together? Because sometimes you can open it up and it feels like you're reading two different stories. And so we've been kind of walking through Scripture. This is our fourth week in this series, and so if you've missed one, you're more than welcome to jump back in uh, and kind of get to where, or kind of catch up with us here. Uh, but this week we're going to be looking at a passage that may be familiar to some of you. We're going to end up landing ultimately in Exodus chapter 20. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you've got a Bible app, you can pull it up and head there. But I want to tell you up front. It's going to take us a long time to get there because we've got a lot of ground to cover between where we left off last week and where Exodus chapter 20 picks up. And so you're going to have to hang with me this morning because ultimately we're headed to the Ten Commandments. And as soon as I say that, there's a view that some of us have of the Ten Commandments. It's like, mm, awesome. Okay, great. Um, I've got some friends who preach on a regular basis. Um, by the way, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm actually a preacher here. I am, I'm just a volunteer. I'm just a part of the congregation here. Uh, Chad is normally here. He's, got, he's way buffer than I am. So you, you, you can definitely see a, a distinct difference uh, as well. Um, but uh, I get the opportunity to kind of jump in and share this. And I have a ton of friends who preach on a regular basis. And if I, I try to listen to their sermons periodically and just, hey, check in and say, hey, you're doing a great job, or, hey, I don't know if you noticed this, but you keep saying, um, all the time. And so just be catching yourself. Uh, but one of the things that happens in that is if, if I see in the feed somebody's preaching on the Ten Commandments, I kind of skip it because, because I, already, I already know those. I already I grew up in church, I went to VBS, watched the video, the original top 10, which came out in 1990. And if you know what I'm talking about, we are friends. Uh, we belong together. Um, and in this, because we know what we, we know these uh, commandments, we know this story. Some of us are, are old enough that we remember and see Charlton Heston. We just know, let my people go. We can feel that in our bones. And so we kind of think we know what we're going. We kind of think we know what the, this passage is about. I think we're wrong. I think how we have talked about the Ten Commandments, how we view the Ten Commandments has been, um, it's not that it's incorrect, it's just not the the right way to see it. It's not the way Scripture even portrays it um, in how it was taught, especially taught to me growing up. And so that's kind of where we're heading. I'm hoping to change your mind on how you view the Ten Commandments, which is a pretty pretty audacious goal, um, just to be honest. It's a pretty big goal for somebody who doesn't do this on a regular basis. But that's where we're headed. So last week, David Gonzalez jumped in and shared about Abraham, Father Abraham, and his calling from God and his beginning to follow him. And David really talked about that it is this uh, piece that comes that God is somebody who can be trusted because God doesn't change and because God's promises don't change. And so God made this promise to Abraham. He said, you will be a great nation and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
And that second part's just as important as the first. That you're going to be a great nation, and you're going to be a blessing. The problem is, is it not how life seemed to end for Abraham? He's got a couple of sons. Really, he's got one son in Isaac, uh, and that's kind of the story, the, 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 uh, the track that things go on. And Isaac comes along, and he has two sons. He has Jacob and Esau. And then uh, and Jacob is kind of the chosen son out of that group. He's the one who gets the blessing. He's the one uh, who, who shows up there. Um, he is just a remarkable figure in Scripture, somebody that uh, is, is not the kind of person you want your kid to grow up to be. He's a little sneaky. He's a little trickster uh, as a young kid, but ultimately grows up to be this person uh, that carries a huge amount of weight. He becomes what we call one of the patriarchs in Scripture. And so Jacob then has a son uh, in, um, Jacob has, uh, he has 12 sons uh, that go down uh, into Egypt. And they ultimately go down into Egypt because of Jacob's son, Joseph. And while he's got 12 sons, which is, that's a pretty big family. I mean, that's, you're into, you're into that 15 passenger van territory. But I don't know that you'd call that a nation. It's a, it's a mighty small nation. It's uh, barely a soccer team. I don't know that you get to call it a nation. Um, and yet that's where the story ends. But when they go down into Egypt, Joseph finds favor with Pharaoh. And he ends up living and ruling in Egypt. He actually becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. There's this whole amazing story that kind of unfolds in the life of Joseph. And he's there in Egypt with God's people. And they all eventually head down there because of a famine. Um, and so God's people are there in Egypt. His brothers are all there. And they're there for years. And eventually Jacob dies and the family continues to grow and babies are born and life is happening. And because of the magic of compounding math, they go from a few people, a small family, a little tribe, a little cohort, and begin to grow and to begin to grow. And over the course of about 400 years, they really become a nation. And what happens is the new Pharaoh that's there, um, because the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died is what scripture tells us. He looks around and he sees this group of people, and he said, there's, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, them Hebrews here. There's a lot of Hebrews in here, and there's so many that they are gonna, they're going to actually take over eventually. And so we need to do something about this. And so he actually begins to enslave all of the people um, and begins to bring them kind of underneath as kind of second-class citizens, that they don't have quite the same rights, uh, the same things, and slowly moves them into this uh, bondage that they begin to have to work for free. They begin to have to work for the state, for the empire, in order to be a part of Egypt still. And they find themselves, eventually, it moves from just a uh, relationship that they are benefiting from to a place where they find themselves enslaved. And ultimately, they find themselves in a place where they can't leave. And so they begin to call out to God saying, God, we are trapped. We are stuck. And it keeps getting worse. Um, Pharaoh looks around and says, you know, they still keep growing. There's still more of them. And so let's go through and just, let's just let's thin the herd. Let's thin the herd. These aren't Egyptians. These aren't even, they're barely even real people. Let's just get rid of all the firstborn sons. We'll just kind of clear out, you know, slow down their growth rate here a little bit. And so he goes through and, and issues an order that all firstborn sons have to be killed. Um, which sounds crazy to us. We hear that and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. But in the ancient world, things were sometimes pretty brutal and sometimes pretty harsh. And so they begin to implement this. But the midwives in Israel actually come and say, hey, we're not, we're not going to do this. We're just going to pretend like we got rid of the baby. But you've got to hide the baby. 
You're going to hide this baby because we don't want Pharaoh to know. Pharaoh looks around. He's like, I don't, I'm not seeing the results I was hoping for. So they begin to send soldiers in to actually intercept babies and to begin to throw them into the Nile River um, as a way to thin out these continued growth. And in this moment, in this moment, there's a woman of the tribe of Levi who has a baby. And the baby is placed in a basket, a basket covered in tar, and placed in the reeds along the edge of the Nile River. And his sister is actually sitting there watching, making sure the baby is okay. And they're not sure what to do because they know they can't take the baby back. They can't take the baby inside. And so they're kind of in this place where they're trying their best, but they don't really have a great plan. And then Pharaoh's daughter, one of Pharaoh's daughters comes along. And she sees this basket floating in the river. And like all of us, if we saw a basket just sitting on the side of the road, we're probably going to go look and see what's in there. And she looks and realizes there's a baby. And she knows the ancient law as good as any fifth grader. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And so she scoops this baby up and takes this baby with her. Uh, she takes this baby into the house and begins to raise him. And, we, and she actually, the scripture tells us that she names this baby Moses. And you've heard of Moses. And so he's being raised in Pharaoh's house. He's kind of growing up in Pharaoh's house, even though he is supposed to have been killed. He's supposed to not be there. Um, and he's growing up, and he kind of has that feeling that I don't know that I belong. And, it, and Scripture doesn't tell us when he figures this out. It doesn't tell us how he figured this out. But at some point, he looks around and realizes, I, I don't think I'm Egyptian. I don't think I'm Egyptian. I don't know if he looks at his skin color, looks at his face, looks at his beard, looks at his hair. I don't know what happens. But he looks around and he says, I, I, don't, I don't know that I belong here. I think, I think those are actually my people. I think those are my people out there. Um, and he goes and begins to identify with the Hebrew people. And ultimately what happens is he sees a Hebrew slave being abused by a, a slave master, being abused by a soldier. And he gets so upset at this that he actually goes and tries to fight back and tries to restrain the soldier and kills the soldier in that scuffle. And he uh, is, and then he, he, he kind of hides the body. He's like, well, I'll just pretend like that never happened. We'll just kind of brush that under the rug here. And later on, he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he jumps in. He says, what are you doing? Why are you fighting your brother? You guys are kin. You guys are part of the same family. You're part of the same tribe. You're part of the same nation. Why are you fighting? And they look at him and say, oh, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And you could probably you can just feel that moment, like, oh, I'm, I've been caught. And so Moses flees, and he goes into the desert for 40 years. And I just want to pause and say, if, you, if, you, if you're following this story and you're kind of walking along, they have been calling out to God for 400 years. They are trapped. They are in isolation. They are in slavery. They're in bondage for 400 years. And Moses shows up and they tell us the beginning of his birth. And you know it's going to be a main character when you get the birth story in the, in the scriptures. And yet he leaves for 40 more years Another generation essentially passes, and nothing changes. And, and I think one of the things that for us sometimes is when we see our lives, when we kind of look at our lives in, in, in the moment, we can miss the fact that sometimes, sometimes things are not what we expect them to be. As a matter of fact, I don't even have to know where you're at right now to tell you that your life right now is not where you wish it was sometimes. It's not where you wish it was. It may be okay. You may be having a pretty good run. 
maybe, maybe uh, 2022 has been a pretty good year, especially considering 2021 and 2022. Uh, you may feel like you're doing okay for the moment, but it isn't great. Many of us find ourselves most of the time in Egypt. We find ourselves in a place where we didn't want to be calling out. And so Moses is there in the wilderness, fleeing from persecution, fleeing from what could happen. And in this moment, in this place, God shows up to talk to Moses. And he shows up in this unexpected way, and he invites Moses to go back to Egypt, commands Moses to go back to Egypt. And there's this long back and forth between Moses and God. Moses basically saying, I don't want to do this, God. I don't, I don't, I don't talk good. I don't, I'm not the right person for this job. And God said, no, no, you are the right person. I have chosen you. And Moses says, well, if I'm going to do this, who am I going to tell him sent me? Who am I going to say? Because that's one of the other parts of this story that's so remarkable, is this God has no name. There, he's referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the patriarchs, the God of our forefathers. But God doesn't have a name. So who, who do I say sent me? Who do I say sent me? And God says, just tell him I am sent you. And Moses is like, listen, that's not even good grammar, God. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean I am? And he, God is just saying, I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent you. And so Moses goes back to Egypt. And it's this remarkable story. Um, this story of Moses showing up and beginning to talk to Pharaoh. And he gets an audience with Pharaoh, and he said, I am sent me. And he said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, not so much. That's not what's going to happen here. I think you misunderstand the situation. And so the, this is where we have the 10 plagues begin to show up. They worshiped the Nile River. The Nile River gave life to the entire region. The Nile River was so important, not just to the empire of Egypt, but to the entire world at this point. Egypt is probably one of the single largest trading partners. Um, we can go back and actually look at archaeological evidence. One of my favorite little tidbits uh, from the, uh, from the Library of Alexandria and from the ports there in Egypt, we know that in at least 2000 BC, they, were, they still had different kinds of beer, multiple kinds of beer. They actually would keep shipping logs of here's the different kinds of beer we're exporting. Here's the different styles of beer. And so one of the things we can do as modern folks is we look back at the ancient world and we think, boy, those people were so primitive. They, they didn't even have an iPhone. <laughs> what would they do? But they are just you and me then. That's all. They're no different than you. They're no dumber than you are. They're no smarter than you are. They are just you and me. And they live in that time period. And they look around and they can see what's happening. And they can see that this river gives life. That when it floods, the entire region prospers. And it floods on this predictable, rhythmic schedule. And they begin to worship this as God, beginning to give a thanks to this as God, beginning to hold this up as maybe the most important part of their life. And the truth is, we even see this in our world now. When you look at the southwest of the United States right now, rivers and canals matter. They are where uh, agriculture rises and falls. And that's ultimately what makes a lot of places in the country rise and fall. It's not just a question of the ancient world. But God says, you worship the Nile River, and so we're going to turn it to blood. You worship the sun, we're going to block out the sun. You worship these different gods, some of them in the shape of cattle. And so we're going to kill cattle. Uh, frogs show up, there's pestilence, there's disease. Everything that the Egyptians held as important is made a mockery in those ten, commandments, or in those ten plagues. 
And it's this amazing story. And it says in Exodus chapter 11, it says, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my many wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. What God is saying is Pharaoh is not going to hear what you say. He is not going to listen. And it's going to give me the opportunity to show who I am and what I do for my people. And in this moment, you have the 10th plague show up. And this is one of the most important stories in all of Scripture. It, in, it informs much of the Old Testament, and it informs much of the New Testament. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And it's the story of Passover. So the 10th tenth, tenth plague comes, and God says, you tried to kill the firstborn of the Hebrews. And so I'm going to kill your firstborn. And God says, the way I will know to, to pass over, the way the angel of death is what the scripture calls it, will pass over is because you've taken a perfect lamb and you've killed it and you've put the blood on the door. And when I see the blood, I'll know to pass over and to move on. And this plague takes place and it is so horrific that Pharaoh finally relents and says, fine, just go. Take what you can and go. And so the people flee and they leave. And they begin to follow God. And you want to be like, that's just such a remarkable story. It's an amazing salvation story. What's crazy is it's not the end. So they leave, and for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe their garment wasn't working, maybe Apple Maps was messing up, but they take a wrong turn. And instead of crossing the normal route to head out of Egypt and back up into what is now modern-day Israel, uh, instead of heading back up to this promised land that has been promised, they wander down and find themselves trapped literally between a rock and a hard place. They are trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because Pharaoh changed his mind. He began to look around and say, listen, these people can't, even, they can't be trusted. Look at these people. They can't even get out of Egypt. They can't even follow directions. They don't need to be free. They need to be here. Go get them. And so he sends his army out. He sends his army to chase after them and to bring them home. And so uh, the, uh, the army of Egypt comes out in chariots and begins to take place, or to bring them back. Um, and man, I have a little tidbit about chariots I really want to tell you, but I'm not, because it's a rabbit trail and it's unrelated. But ask me afterwards if you're a nerd about history. I'd love to tell you about it. Um, so they chase after the Egyptians, and they ultimately find themselves trapped between the sea and the army. And God makes a way. He opens up the Red Sea, and they cross the Red Sea. And then the Egyptians try to cross after and are ultimately killed. And it's this beautiful picture of being saved and being uh, brought into this new life and being brought into this promised land, uh, crossing through the water and raised to new life. And so they cross into this promised land, and it's here that they find their way to Mount Sinai. And it's here that we get to where we're headed this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip them open to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Starting in verse 1, it says this. Um, And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. This is God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. He's standing up on the mountain. Um, He's he's having this revelation from God. And one of the things that we grow up with sometimes is we grow up with this view of the Ten Commandments that this is the baseline. Like, you have to meet this standard. It's a little bit of, if we remember when you're a little kid and you go to the water park and you see the sign that says, you must be at least this tall to ride 
and you're like trying so hard to be tall enough, but you don't quite measure up, and your parents say, oh, next year you'll be tall enough, and then it finally comes, where you finally have reached the level. That's a little bit of how we talked about the Ten Commandments as a kid. Um, We talked about them uh, in many ways as this is what you do in order to be right with God. you got to hit these ten. I remember hearing that idea, Um, and I remember hearing it in all kinds of subtle ways, not just directly, like, hey, you got to make sure you're keeping the Ten Commandments, but hey, you know, you got to make sure that you, uh, you're avoiding even looking like you might be breaking the Ten Commandments. And so you get it boiled down into little uh, acronyms and your little, little phrases and little turns of phrase, you know, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. That was, the, that was a phrase that I heard repeatedly growing up. Now, albeit I'm 40, and I did grow up in Kentucky, so we kind of grew up a, a few decades behind everybody else in the United States. But um, it was a big deal. I remember hearing about how important it was. Um, And so what happened is you ultimately end up with uh, this place where you want to be part of God's people. um, But you have, you're kind of pushing this direction. You want to be a part of that. You want to get into that circle. But you end up having this barrier around it. You have this wall around it. And it's the law. You got to make sure the law is here. The law is how you know who's in and who's out. The law is how you know who's in and who's out. The law is here, and it helps to give us a framework to make decisions. It helps to give us a framework for how we're supposed to live our lives. Um, It helps us to understand. And for some of us, we grew up, and we are such rule followers. I am a rule follower by nature. Um, I I tend to pick my own rules that I'll follow, uh, which is a whole other story about uh, my own personal struggles. But I am definitely a rule follower. My wife, not so much. Um, she, she's, uh, she hears rules and she's like, uh-huh, okay, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, we, I know it's a rule, but, like, we gotta, we gotta get it done, we gotta make sure things are done. And so, for people like my wife, they actually go through and they add a second layer, uh, growing up. Uh, you have this hedge around the law. So, you don't even want to get to the law, you don't want to break that, so we're gonna add this extra layer of protection here. And I know adults who've lived in this space for such a long time. I remember being at a church potluck and asking a guy, I said, hey, I'm going to go grab a drink. Do you want something? And he said to me, he said, no, I can't because they only have the red Solo cups. And I was like, uh, you just hate Toby Keith? Like, is, that, is that what's going on here? You just can't hate that Toby Keith song? And he's like, no, I can't. I can't drink out of a red Solo cup because if somebody drives by and sees me drinking out of a red Solo cup, they might think that I'm drinking beer. And, and I wouldn't want them to think that. So I'm just not going to have anything. Uh, he said, I only drink out in public if I can have it in a can. And I was like, I, was like, oh. I mean, one, one it's, it's one o'clock on a Sunday and we're at church potluck. We're all standing outside like, I'm not sure what you're worried about. And two, really? Like you're 60 years old. You've lived your whole, you never drank out of a red solo cup? What did you do at high school graduations? What did you do at the barbecue? Do you just always bring your can of Pepsi just to make sure nobody knows? And that's the problem with the hedge around the law. That's a problem with these rules upon rules upon rules. You end up ultimately, when you reach the time of Jesus, that the rabbis have created, there's some 600 plus rules that have to be followed. And people are constantly looking for ways around them, constantly looking for ways uh, to mitigate them and to reduce the impact of them because they don't want to look like they might be the kind of person that breaks the rules. And this is the struggle for some of us, is we have this space in which we are so desperate to be seen as the right kind of people. We're so desperate for folks to recognize that we're the right kind of people, that we miss the actual goal. And for some of you, you're like, well, that's, that's definitely my spouse. That's not me. 
I am not that kind of person. And the struggle is, is, is you can flip the other direction. You can look at some of the passages from the New Testament. You can say, hey, we have this freedom in Christ. We have this this gift in Christ. It doesn't matter how the sacrifices are made. It doesn't matter uh, if the meat's been sacrificed or idols or not. We have freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want. So the rules don't even apply to me. And you can live this life that misses the whole point of that because you end up thinking it's about you and your happiness and your benefit. And you end up thinking that you are the arbiter. And we'll say things like, hey, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm authentic. Now, I'm authentically a mess. I'm authentically so chaotic that my life, my finances, my relationships are constantly in chaos. But at least I am who I am. I don't pretend to be anything. I'm not a hypocrite. Um, and so you end up with either side of this. And Paul, or Paul actually tells us in the book of Galatians that um, he uses circumcision as an analogy for the law. But he says in Galatians that circumcision and uncircumcision, neither are benefit. Neither matter. What matters is what we do as faith worked out in love. And ultimately, I think that's the challenge here, is the, the whole reason for the law, the whole reason even for the hedge around the law, is not that it's a protection for God's people to know who's in or who out, but instead it's a target that we know where we're going, that we see what God's doing. Because if you listen to this text again, jumping back into Genesis, or Exodus chapter 20, he says, um, he says this, he says, uh, that I am your God, um, and, and you are my people. It says, um, I am the God who brought you through Egypt uh, and brought you into the land. You will have no other gods before me. And he wants to make it clear that he has already been at work. They are already God's people. You catch that? He has already saved them. He has already brought them through the water and raised them to new life on the other side. He has already chosen them as his people. They will already be a numerous nation. They will already be a blessing. And what he's saying in the Ten Commandments is the beginning of each of these, it's actually plural. What he's saying is it's not you individual. It's not you as a person. It's you as a people. The better translation for this, and it does my Kentucky heart so proud, is all you all will not have other gods before me. So all y'all will not have other gods before me. All y'all. What he's saying is, this is how we behave in this family, in this nation, as God's people. This is who we are. This is the kind of community. Not that you won't steal because it's wrong. Not because you won't steal, but because you, we are going to be the kind of community in which people don't steal. Where you don't have to lock your doors. Where you feel safe and secure with your neighbors. This is the kind of people that we're going to be. And it's this calling out to the life that we were meant to be. And it's such a small shift. It's this shift, though, that comes from maturing. That comes from growing. When kids are little, you have to give them specific rules. You have to tell them, hey, do this, don't do this. And as they get a little older, they get a little cleverer, and they start finding little workarounds. I know you said that I wasn't supposed to get on the switch, but you didn't say I couldn't get on the TV. So I, so I hooked the switch up to the TV. 
And what about that? That seems like a fair rule. Your kids can create all of these exclusions, all of these places. And we as adults, we do the same thing. One of my favorite stories is there's this food in Germany. It's a pasta. It's a pasta dish filled with ground beef. And it was famous for being eaten on Lent and being eaten on Fridays. And it's from this particular Catholic region of Germany. And the name is, uh, for that pasta, translated uh, literally into English, the colloquial name is God's Little BSers. Because God couldn't see the ground beef inside the pasta. You know, the pastas, he can't see through it. It's not, he can see through everything else, but he can't see the meat inside the pasta. So he doesn't know that we're breaking the rules of eating meat during Lent. He doesn't know that we're breaking the rules of eating meat on Friday because we have this thin layer of dough that keeps him out. And we all look at it and we're like, man, how silly is that? And that's part of what God has been saying to you all along. If you're somebody who's trying desperately to be enough, to earn enough, you'll never get there. And it's not because the rules don't matter. It's not because the rules don't apply. It's because the point of the rules were to help you become who God made you to be in the first place. To help us to be the kind of people that make up the community of God. The point of the rules is not just to know who's in and who's out. Who measures up. Who reaches it. The point is to invite us in to who he is. It's this remarkable moment um, of freedom, of hope. And no matter where you find yourself, whether you find yourself in slavery, whether you find yourself trapped in Egypt, or you find yourself wandering in the wilderness, not sure what's next. And the truth is, I think most of our lives are spent in that space. I remember the moment as an adult when I figured out that no other adult knows what they're doing. Um, it was a remarkable moment for me. I was sitting in the office. I was telling Dean last week, I was sitting in the office of, of a friend of mine who was a local magistrate as a judge. And we were talking about somebody uh, that we both were care, caring for. We both were kind of, it was a part of our lives. And we were trying to figure out how to help him best and what to do. And she was kind of sharing a little bit of some of the trauma that he experienced as a kid. And he said, she said, at times, I just know that it's easy to carry that trauma into your adult life, that you can still feel like a kid as an adult. And man, I was about 30 years old, and I just felt it just, uh, just a kick in the teeth because I'm sitting there, and I feel exactly like that awkward junior high kid, that awkward high school kid. And she said, you know, you, he still feels that way as an adult. And I'm like, man, that's me. And so I looked at her and said, hey, I know you're 60. When did you start feeling like an adult? When did you start finally feeling like a grown-up? And she laughed, and she said, when I put on my makeup on this morning, I still, still see that foolish teenage girl that I was at 17. She said, I still feel like I'm that person. And here she is sitting in this beautiful mahogany office, big leather Chesterfield that I'm sitting on, terribly impressive. And she still feels like that kid. Because we're all struggling with this. We all struggle, whether we're somebody who wants to follow the rules and we can just feel like we can't get it right, or we're somebody who's so convinced the rules don't apply to us and we are living our best life in our freedom. And in reality, we're kind of trapped. No matter where you fall in that, that never was meant to be an inside or an outside because you already belong to God. And that's ultimately what this is, is it's this foreshadowing of Jesus coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection that is the blood that covers us. He is our Passover lamb, Scripture tells us. It is because of him that we get in. Scripture actually says he is the fulfillment of the law. And sometimes people talk about it and they mean, well, it just means he kept all the law. No, he fills the law up. 
He is all that it was supposed to be. And he is who we get to claim because of his life, his burial, and his resurrection. It is his righteousness that we get to put on. And it is him that we follow. And it's the invitation that lays for us all. So this morning, I hope that this gives you hope um, because the, uh, God's arms are waiting wide open for you. Um, we are going to be this community that belongs to God. Um, we're going to sing uh, uh, Run to the Altar. And it's got these wonderful words. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That God has been waiting for you and he's been active for you. And it may not be in the time you want, and it may not be as fast as you want, and you may find yourself in Egypt, trapped in bondage and slavery. You may find yourself trapped in this moment of um, feeling like you're in the wilderness, that you're wandering, that you feel stuck. But it's in all of this that you already belong to God. You are already in God's uh, graces. You already belong there. And all you have to do is to say yes to Jesus and to begin to follow And life won't be perfect, but it will be better because of who God is. Father God, as we sing this together, would we hear these words? Would they be prayers from us that we would run to you? That we would know that you are enough? That we wouldn't get tangled up in rules and regulations and creating extra rules just so we can look like the right people? just so we can feel like the right people, but instead just come clean and know that we have fallen short, that we have sinned, that we've hurt others, we've hurt ourselves, which means we have hurt you. And yet, in all of that, even as we try to hide ourselves, you come to us and you call out to us, where are you? Not because you don't know, not because you can't see, but because you want us to know that you see us for who we are. And ultimately, it's your people. God, I thank you so much for the remarkable truth that we belong to you because of Jesus. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.